Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak. I'm an academic economist by training and the executive vice president of criminal justice at Arnold Ventures. My guest this week is Ben Feigenberg. Ben is an associate professor of economics at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on today. I should say up front that everything you and I say today represents our own views and not necessarily those of our employers. Is that accurate? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, let's dive in. Today, we're going to talk about your research on socioeconomic disparities in which motorists police choose to search. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Sure, I'd be happy to. So my training is in economics, and I think uh, sort of a unifying theme of my work has just been a focus on marginalized, disadvantaged groups. And, you know, across a range of settings, so looking at, you know, schools, the immigration landscape, and more recently focused on the criminal legal system, my interest has been in trying to understand, you know, sources of disparate treatment across these settings as a function of policies and practices, and then really trying to, you know, identify and rigorously evaluate policies that might help to remedy some of those disparities. And, you know, I do that with a combination of randomized control style experiments, as well as more quasi-experimental work, like the project we're going to talk about today. Great. So your paper is titled Class Disparities and Discrimination in Traffic Stops and Searches, and it's co-authored with Conrad Miller. So you and Conrad focus on disparities in who gets searched during traffic stops, particularly what you call pretext stops. What are pretext stops and how common are they? Yeah, so it's a great question. The first part of the question is easier to answer than the second part. So <laughs> a pretext stop, you know, is typically thought to be a stop where the violation itself is, you know, not particularly serious. So we're not so worried about public safety. I think a classic example would be like an expired registration sticker. And the idea is that there's, you know, a trooper, a police officer who observes a motorist in vehicle, you know, is suspicious about some underlying criminal conduct. And so is using that stop basis to further investigate the motorists. So to get a chance to, you know, speak to them, take a look at their vehicle, and then potentially if they have justification to actually go ahead and search them. In terms of their prevalence, you know, I think it, there's no great data uh, that gives us a sense of how frequent these are. I think most uh, analyses of pretextual stops, uh, like the analysis in our paper, is really focused on uh, documenting disparate exposure to pretextual stops, in our case, based on socioeconomic status. You know, what I can say, though, is that uh, I think anecdotally and particularly among members of minority communities, there's a sense that these pretext stops play an important role in driving overall disparities and exposure to, you know, interactions with troopers to stops to ticketing behavior. And, you know, to the extent that we think a substantial share of non-moving violations, so that's like equipment and regulatory violations, are you know driven by pretextual factors. We see in Texas in our study sample that nearly half of all stops are either equipment or regulatory. So elaborating on that a little bit, why does this matter? What is the cost of that extra search? Yeah, so I think there are a few important costs to have in mind. You know, first, just from an equity perspective, I mean, tickets impose financial burdens, right? That's going to be, you know, particularly painful when we're thinking about the disparate impact on individuals who are already low income to start. You know, searches themselves that lead to contraband discovery can, of course, have you know, life-altering impacts, right, leading to arrest, incarceration, and all of the sort of negative downstream consequences of those outcomes. I think, you know, more generally, 
being stopped and searched in the first place is just a really stressful experience, particularly for those coming from communities where, you know, there's reason to be somewhat fearful of engaging with the police. And stops are also, you know, particularly in recent years, seen as an important driver of disparate exposure to police violence. And so for all those reasons, I think, you know, it's reasonable to suspect that to the extent there's discrimination in stops and searches, that has the potential to give rise to lower trust in the police, lower trust in criminal justice institutions more broadly, and ultimately to make policing less effective because, you know, there's less community buy-in. Okay. So you're interested in class disparities and who gets searched. So what do we know about disparities and who is stopped or searched by police more broadly? Yeah, great. So, you know, sort of going back to your first question of how I became interested in, you know, this area of research. Uh, so Conrad Miller and I have a previous project, which was looking at racial disparities in search in the same context and basically documenting that minority motorists uh, are more likely to be searched and that there's no efficiency gains associated with those disparities. And so, you know, we find that you could basically make search rates equitable across groups without reducing contraband yield. But we had this interesting finding in that paper that was pretty tangential to, you know, our main narrative, which was this evidence that higher income motorists were searched less frequently than their lower income counterparts. And so that's really what gave rise to the study. In terms of positioning it, you know, within this broader literature, I think there's sort of a really rich body of work documenting, you know, profiling discrimination in the form of race and ethnicity-based disparities, essentially across all stages of the criminal justice process. So looking at, you know, traffic stops, officer ticketing, uh, traffic searches, arrests, pretrial detention, you know, you name it, pretty much there's evidence of disparities and outcomes along that margin. I think we know much less about class disparities. And in particular, the evidence we do have is mostly about uh, neighborhood characteristics. So we know that in more disadvantaged neighborhoods, we see higher rates of police presence, uh, higher stop rates, higher arrest rates. But that's difficult to interpret because contextual factors uh, might differ as well. And so that's sort of the impetus for our project is to say, look, we're going to come as close as we can to holding these contextual factors fixed and ask how a motorist class or their perceived class influences the way that they're treated by police. So why hasn't there been more research on the effect of class on stops and searches? Has the holdup been a data challenge or an identification challenge? Or have we just been so focused on other demographic, fac demographic factors that we are not thinking about class when we should be? Yeah, that's an important question. I think, uh, you know, maybe it's a cop-out, but the answer is to some degree <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think, you know, one key data challenge is that you know, many, most law enforcement agencies are regularly reporting information on stops, searches, and arrests by race. And there's sort of no parallel reporting of data by motorist class or based on information that would allow you to construct a proxy for class. Uh, and so that makes it hard to look at this margin. You know, as we may talk about as uh, our discussion goes on, right, for this work, we had to construct our own class measure and that required, you know, merging in a variety of different data sources. So it was sort of a, you know, a fairly challenging process. I think uh, sort of getting back to the fact that we have evidence mostly based on neighborhood characteristics, another key challenge is just that, you know, in the context of looking at area level disparities, uh, there's what's called this high crime area doctrine, which basically says that, you know, police can use these neighborhood contextual factors when they're deciding whether it's reasonable to suspect criminal activity in the first place. And so I think that makes it hard to interpret disparities across areas. And 
you know, the uh, traffic stop context is sort of a natural one to really try to isolate what we're interested in. And we're really fortunate that, uh, you know, in recent years, uh, the Stanford Open Policing Project has made this, uh, you know, impressive effort to make public data on traffic stops that's allowed us to conduct this research. Okay. So in this paper, you consider stops made by the Texas Highway Patrol. Tell us a little bit about what Highway Patrol troopers do. And in particular, when are they allowed to search someone's vehicle? Yeah, sure. So Texas Highway Patrol troopers you know, are primarily focused on enforcing state traffic laws, but uh, they have pretty broad purview working on highways, state roads to enforce criminal law as well. And so basically, when they have reasonable suspicion, uh, they can conduct a traffic stop, give a warning or citation for that original violation, but then they can also make a decision you know, in real time regarding whether they want to investigate further. Uh, if they are suspecting there's some uh, you know, criminal activity taking place, or in particular, that the motorist is carrying contraband, which in our setting is typically going to be weapons or illegal drugs. And so in terms of the basis upon which they can conduct a search, uh, there are basically four ways that they can go about searching uh, a motorist and vehicle. The two most common are probable cause and consent-based searches. And so probable cause searches are uh, you know, when the trooper has right, probable cause, which is an evidentiary standard, to believe that you know, there's some underlying criminal conduct, and that gives them a basis to conduct the search. You know, so an example of probable cause would be you suspect that someone is driving under the influence, you pull them over, and they're slurring their words, and you smell alcohol on their breath. Another basis for a search would be uh, consent. So you ask the motorist directly, you know, do I have your consent to search your vehicle? And they say yes. And then the two less common uh, reasons that are going to allow a trooper to conduct a search are either the vehicle's already been impounded, in which case they have sort of broad ability to conduct searches as they see fit based on local policy, or when the motorist has already been arrested for some other reason and they want to conduct a search after that. Okay. And the meat of this paper is this amazing data that you have on these state troopers and and the stops they make. So tell us more about these data. What do you know about the stops and the drivers and where did you get the data from? So as you noted, this data is pretty incredible in sort of its breadth uh, and also in the level of detail it provides on stops and on drivers. We accessed it through the Stanford uh, Open Policing Project, which, you know, has gone about basically conducting this exercise of pulling in, cleaning up, making publicly available data on millions of traffic stops across uh, states and specific jurisdictions in the United States. And so in terms of the Texas data that we're leveraging here, uh, what we see are sort of standard fields like, you know, the date and time of stop, the location of the stop, but also some really rich information related to the motorists. We see their full name, their home address, race, ethnicity, gender, We know the type of motor vehicle they're driving. So that's the make, model, and the year of the vehicle. Uh, We see the violation for which they're stopped, whether a search takes place, whether the search results in contraband discovery, as well as the identity, so a unique identifier for the trooper who conducted the search. Uh, And the data uh, are covering all stops, so those that result in warnings, also citations. We have 16 million stops in the sample conducted by the Texas Highway Patrol. Uh, between 2009 and 2015, uh, we have some data restrictions uh, that we impose to make sure that we can identify locations of residents. So we end up with about 11 million stops in our main sample. Texas is a big state. <laughs> Lots of drivers. Yeah, fortunately. And then you're going to be, um, because your focus is on socioeconomic class, you're going to be trying to figure out what the class is of the drivers in your sample. So how do you do that? Sure. So 
the first class measure that we're going to focus on is going to be based on residential address. And so here we're going to make use of a couple complementary data sources. So as I mentioned, we have the motorist residential address from the stops data. We're going to use some commercial address history data so that we can match you know, motorists across stops when they're potentially changing addresses. Uh, and so this address history data just lets us confirm that we see the same name at two different addresses. It's indeed the same individual. Then we're going to draw in American Community Survey data. So the ACS publishes these data files uh, that cover you know, five years of survey responses and basically give us some interval-based distributions of income at what's called the block group level. So it's a really small geography, typically has about 600 to 3,000 people in it. And so we can see you know, a rough income distribution for both homeowners and for renters. And so you know, we already have right, sort of the median income at the block group. If we just stop there, you know, we find that qualitatively our results look quite similar. What we ultimately do in the paper, though, is go one step further and say, okay, let's next merge in some property assessment data. And we're going to use that first to identify the property type and say, well, if someone lives in a single family residence, we know it's likely that they're a homeowner. If someone lives in another type of property, like an apartment complex, they're likely to be a renter. For homeowners, we're then going to assign them to a position within the income distribution based on the value of their property relative to other properties within that geography, within that block group. Uh, for renters, we're just going to assign them to the median income interval for renters within that same block group. And so that's essentially how we're going to construct our measure of motorist income using residential address. Okay. So with the data on the stops and the drivers and your estimates of what their incomes are, you move on to the, the analysis. So the first thing you do is consider class disparities in the search rate. So starting with the sample of all stopped drivers in Texas, how does the likelihood that a driver is searched vary with their income? So big picture, it goes down and it goes down significantly. I can give you a regression estimate. So you know our regression says uh, you increase household income by 10 log points. So that's about 10%. That's associated with a 0.05 percentage point decrease in the search rate. That's a little tough to you know, interpret, I think. So I find sort of a more compelling way to summarize those differences by income is just to look at folks who are in the top quintiles, the top 20% by income, and the bottom quintile by income. And you see that those in the top quintile are searched in 1.1% of stops. Those in the bottom quintile are searched in 2.5% of stops, so more than twice as often. And so those are big gaps. Okay. And then next, you look at what happens, uh, what the result of those searches are. Uh, so, so you look at the hit rate. So that's the share of searches where contraband was found. How does the hit rate vary with driver's income? Yeah. So for us, this is really sort of the smoking gun suggestion. <laughs> troopers here aren't operating efficiently if you know, mm -hmm. their objective is purely to maximize contraband yield. So to make sure that you know, searches result in right, the discovery of drugs, weapons, what have you, at the highest possible rate, because we find the exact opposite pattern. So as incomes go up, hit rates are also increasing. Right? So higher income motorists you know, are searched less frequently, but they're more likely to have contraband when they are searched. And so relating you know, to the comparison I gave you by income quintile of the search rates, uh, we see that for the top quintile, the top 20% of motorists, contraband's detected when they're searched uh, about 41% of the time. And for the bottom quintile, that's about 33% of the time that contraband is found after a search. Yeah, so if officers were operating 
super efficiently and using their time in the the best way possible if their goal is to find contraband then we would expect that I'm imagining a graph now we would expect the line to be flat right so there'd be like there'd be no difference in the hit rate between poorer drivers and richer drivers is that right exactly and here we're drawing on a finding from our prior study actually where we're showing that you know in practice the hit rate is pretty similar regardless of how frequently troopers are searching. So, you know, getting a little wonky here, but you might worry that, right, troopers are really good at identifying contraband in their first few searches, but as they search more and more, they find it less and less frequently. And that doesn't turn out to be the case in our setting. So your description was exactly right. Yeah. So you kind of imagine like, you know, you've got, you you have a car and you've got like, you know, you can see the guns on the back seat. Like any dry, any cop that pulls that person over is going to search the car because they can see that they've got you know all this illegal contraband with them. And then there are other cars that it's much less clear what they're going to find, and so there's going to be some kind of gradient of cars and drivers that they're going to want to search. And so the question just becomes who they choose to search along that gradient. And it sounds like they are over-searching the poor drivers in your sample. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we have sort of a more formal test of this where we're basically trying to directly evaluate the marginal search rates. Uh, so for rich versus poor drivers, we ask, you know, for the searches that right are only conducted because they happen to be driving a car that makes them uh, sort of particularly suspicious in the view of troopers, right? What's the likelihood they have contraband on that search? And we find that that marginal hit rate is higher for the higher income motorists than the lower income ones. So that's sort of reaffirming this finding that, you know, indeed it looks like the distribution of searches here is not only inequitable, but also just inefficient. Yeah. Okay. So next you use a different, more salient measure of the driver's income, the car they drive. If they're actually are trying to discriminate based on class, they don't know the person's income when they're driving down the road, but they can see what car they're driving. And that car, uh, maybe if they have a really nice car, it might signal that they're rich. And if they have a, you know, a really old beat up car, then they might not have as much income. So, um, so your car is signaling your socioeconomic class to police, but you can easily change this signal by driving a different car on different days which is different from other kinds of demographic uh, characteristics that we try to measure discrimination based on. So you're going to use this in a clever way. But first, how common is it for the same driver to be stopped multiple times in different cars in your sample? You know, more common than I would have thought going into this project. Uh, So we see uh, about 60% of stops involve motorists who are stopped multiple times, and about 20% of stops involve motorists were previously stopped in a different vehicle. And, you know, after we sort of started working through this research, you know, introspectively, I thought back to being a high school student and realized, you know, I was essentially part of the sample where sometimes I would go out and, you know, drive our family minivan, which was relatively new, looking pretty good. Other times I would take, you know, my dad's beat up Toyota Corolla, which was sort of in desperate need of a paint job. And so Mm -hmm. that's the kind of natural experiment we have in mind here. Okay, great. So how do you use the vehicle characteristics, what car you're driving, to test for discrimination based on socioeconomic class? Sure. So first, we need to come up with, you know, essentially a summary measure of class based on the vehicle that we see. And so we do that by predicting your household income using a set of vehicle attributes. So we use the vehicle make, 
We use the age of the vehicle. Uh, and then we use sort of a broad measure of vehicle type. So whether it's a passenger car or a pickup truck or an SUV. And so in the paper, we call that our measure of vehicle status, which we're thinking of as, you know, conveying this class signal. So, you know, you should think of sort of newer luxury cars are going to be right high status, have high predicted income associated with them. Older economy cars are going to be lower status, lower or associated predicted income. And so what we're going to do once we've built up this vehicle status measure is then just look at sequential stops for the same motorists and ask essentially how the change in search rates across those pairs of stops is related to the change in the vehicle status of the vehicles that they're driving across that same pair of stops. Uh, and we're going to use a similar logic to look for pretext stops as well, which we discussed earlier. And so, you know, the, the key challenge here, and as you alluded to, this is sort of a, you know, first order challenge in any work trying to look at disparities and understand the extent to which they're driven by discrimination is that it's really hard to understand the extent to which, you know, differences in treatment in our case based on income. So for high income versus low income motorists are driven by discrimination on income versus some correlated feature that we can't actually observe, right? And so that could be something like bumper stickers, what have you. Here, we have an opportunity to change the class signal. So change the perceived class of the motorist, but hold the motorist themselves fixed. And so hold fixed, you know, their beliefs, right? Their demeanor, their general behavior, their way of speech. And so the idea is that as long as, you know, the changes in other search determinants, so other things that might lead to a trooper believing that they're carrying contraband are unrelated to the status of the vehicle they're driving, then this approach is going to allow us to identify how troopers are responding to or discriminating on class directly. We have a bunch of robustness checks in the paper uh, where we're basically trying to provide support for this assumption. Okay, so what do you find? How do search rates change when the same driver is stopped in a different car? Yeah, so you know, broadly speaking, qualitatively, we find patterns that look a lot like the patterns we see when we look at the overall relationship between uh, search and uh, motorist income. And so we find that you know troopers are profiling on class when motorists are stopped in higher status vehicles, they're less likely to be searched. The estimate that we get from this within motorist design, so using the variation in vehicle, uh, is about a quarter of the size of the overall relationship we find. But we think of that as sort of a lower bound on the share of that overall relationship explained by discrimination, since troopers might also be using you know, other correlated status signals, so things like the clothing that someone wears uh, when they're deciding who to search. And of course, you know, that's going to be relatively more invariant within an individual. Okay. So these results suggest that state troopers are searching too many low-income drivers, and their searches would be more productive in terms of finding contraband if they searched high-income drivers instead. So why do troopers do this? Do they just like giving low-income drivers a hard time? Or is it something about the way different drivers respond to a search that might lead them to go easier on the wealthier drivers? So tell us about the hassle costs that you and Conrad describe in the paper and how you measure them. Sure. So I think, you know, this is a really interesting question and one we don't have a lot of evidence on in terms mm-hmm. of understanding trooper incentives. But we think these hassle costs are, you know, playing a potentially important role in driving these disparities. And I'll, I'll tell you what we do and then talk about sort of a few other ways they might come into play as well. What we have in mind are basically hassle costs related to what happens after a driver is found with contraband and arrested. And the basic idea is that, you know, after the arrest takes place, a trooper may have to show up in court, you know, 
pretrial pleadings, at trial itself, if uh, a given case goes to trial. And there's evidence suggesting that from the trooper's perspective, that's you know a stressful adversarial experience, that it's also logistically challenging. So it might be in the middle of their day off and so isn't very attractive, even if you know they're getting some amount of overtime pay. And we also know that low-income motorists are more likely to rely on publicly assigned counsel through the indigent defense system. And there's some evidence from prior work in Texas suggesting that uh, those relying on publicly assigned counsel have higher rates of conviction via guilty or no contest plea. And so the basic idea, right, is that, you know, if you show up at court and you plead guilty or no contest, the trooper's no longer going to have to come in and testify, right? There's less scope for their testimony to be discredited, you know, for some procedural violation to be uncovered. And so all else equal, we think, you know, that's one reason why troopers may prefer searching low-income drivers in the first place. You know, we see the same pattern in our data when we look at the guilty no contest plea rate by income, that higher income motorists uh, are less likely to plead guilty no contest, more likely to ultimately have their cases dismissed. And, you know, as I alluded to, we're focused on sort of one measurable version of these hassle costs, but you might imagine they show up in uh, different sort of unobserved dimensions as well. So maybe high income motorists are more likely to be videotaping the interaction and that's stressful from the perspective of troopers. Maybe they're more likely to file complaints against what they perceive to be uh, sort of procedural violations. And that also could potentially deter troopers on the margin from conducting these searches. So, you know, I think there are there are several potential pathways through which these hassle costs could influence trooper behavior. So you're able to, to test this, at least in, you know, using this proxy for, for these hassle costs. So do you find that hassle costs affect search rates? Yeah. So to make the case that uh, that they do seem to predict mm-hmm. search rates, what we do is basically we look across Texas, so across all of the counties, and this is building on uh, some prior work that Conrad Miller and I did where for each county, we essentially try to isolate a measure of these hassle costs where we say, all right, let's condition on everything we can observe in terms of defendant characteristics, case characteristics, and then just try to identify differences in the rate at which defendants uh, plead guilty or no contest. And so, you know, counties in which there are lower rates of guilty, no contest pleading uh, are going to be those counties that for various institutional factors seem to impose higher hassle costs. So troopers are going to be more likely in our view to ultimately have to appear in court. And then we go back to the stops data and we show that it's precisely in those counties uh, where guilty no contest plea rates are lower that we see that uh, search rates, again, conditioning on, uh, you know, where the search takes place, the time, the motorist characteristics, that the search rates themselves are also lower. So when hassle costs are higher, we do see this evidence that troopers seem to be deterred from conducting searches in the first place. So what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners who are listening take away from your study? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, from our perspective, the most obvious policy takeaway is that uh, making these search decisions on the basis of motorist class and particular based on the vehicle a motorist is driving is a bad idea from, you know, both an equity and an efficiency standpoint. And um, as you well know, you know, in economics, we often face this trade-off where we want more equity, but that's going to come at some cost in terms of efficiency. So that doesn't seem to be the case here. This is sort of, uh, you know, an easy solution, right? Is basically to say, look, if troopers were just to treat everyone as though they were driving the same vehicle, right, the distribution of searches would be more fair, and it would also be the case that they'd find contraband at higher rates. I think, you know, sort of a a second takeaway that uh, is a little less direct is that uh, we're finding, you know, this interconnectedness across different dimensions of the criminal legal system. So in particular, 
this notion that how low-income defendants are treated, behave within, you know, after arrest, once court proceedings have begun, uh, is in turn predicting how low-income motorists are treated, right, on the search basis, you know, before any criminal conduct uh, has been identified or taken place. And so that suggests to us that, uh, you know, one avenue for producing more equitable treatment in the context of stops and searches would be to do something like improve the quality of indigent defense, because again, that wouldn't just benefit, you know, the low-income defendants uh, who right, would directly uh, see improved outcomes through the provision of higher quality counsel, but it could also potentially benefit all low-income drivers uh, who are being, you know, exposed to search and right these sort of negative downstream consequences of search at higher rates because of these inequalities in uh, the court adjudication process. Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on the study? You know, as far as I know, I don't think there are any other papers that have sort of directly touched on the sorts of class disparities in the criminal justice context that Mm -hmm. uh, we're interested in. But there is, you know, a lot of new work related to disparities in the criminal justice system more broadly and work that's new to us. Um, There's a really nice recent paper by Keith Chen and co-authors, which is using this sort of creative approach to drawing on smartphone data to look at racial disparities and uh, where police are patrolling across several large cities in the U.S. I guess we both actually just saw this uh, neat paper uh, by a graduate student at University of Michigan, James Reeve, who is looking at highway trooper incentives in the context of Washington State. And I found that super interesting. Um, And then there's also this body of work that I've sort of only learned about in the process of writing this paper, uh, much of it from psychology, uh, looking at how people infer class cues and then how that can trigger stereotyping, lead to discrimination. uh, And then also some work uh, looking at hassle costs, but uh, along a very different dimension. So this project uh, by Brad Nathan and co-authors in Dallas County, Texas, basically showing that wealthier households are more likely to file tax protests uh, to reduce what they owe in property taxes. And this is sort of you know another dimension along which you're seeing these class disparities arising out of hassle costs. Of course, you know very different from the one we're studying. So nothing directly speaking to you know our uh, specific research question of interest, but I think lots of work that. Uh, sort of more broadly informs what we're doing and uh, the questions we're trying to answer. Always more more answers being generated on all all the margins all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about going forward? Sure. So, you know, I think as you alluded to earlier, really trying to better understand what motivates, what drives trooper decision-making and, you know, not just in the context of traffic stops, but more broadly seems to me to be really first order. Um, and I think, you know, part of this is understanding what officer incentives are. So what's determining, uh, you know, whether they're promoted, whether they receive bonuses, whether they get demerits, complaints are filed against them and so forth. And I think, you know, this is useful because that's sort of a necessary first step to then understand, right, what are the sorts of policies and practices we could put in place to alter those incentives or those determinants of decision-making if we think you know that the status quo is undesirable, and hopefully I've made the case that at least in the context we're looking at related to these discriminatory uh, stop and search patterns, that it is. Um, I think you know also just sort of a plug again, circling back to our earlier discussion for more data related to motorist, defendant, economic class, um, you know, in the context of traffic stops, but also in the criminal justice context more broadly, because I think uh, the lack of that data is sort of really hampering our ability to, you know, dig in to the set of questions related to disparities by economic class and uh, what we can do to try to mitigate them. 
Awesome. My guest today has been Ben Feigenberg from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Ben, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures and our other contributors for supporting the show. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.